Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. In 1757, Martha Dandridge Custis paid the artist John Wollaston the handsome sum of 56 pistols for portraits of her, her husband Daniel Park Custis, and their children John and Martha. Pistols were a Spanish gold coin commonly used in the colony at the time. The future Mrs. Martha Washington was among the hundreds of Virginians who had their portraits painted over the course of the 17th and 18th centuries. They used portraiture to depict their wealth and status among the Virginia aristocracy, communicate ideas about gender, and cement their identities as cultured members of the British Empire. Many of these portraits survive in museums, historical societies, archives, and even private homes. Many of them have been lost to the ravages of time and mentioned only in passing in letters, diaries, or other pieces of evidence. Fortunately, you can now see many of these portraits in one place. On today's episode, Dr. Janine Yorimoto-Bolt joins me to discuss her new digital project, Colonial Virginia Portraits. Inspired by her dissertation research on early American visual culture and built in collaboration with the Omohundra Institute, Colonial Virginia Portraits is a fascinating way to see our early American past. Bolt is presently an Andrew W. Mellon postdoctoral curatorial fellow at the American Philosophical Society, where she is organizing a new exhibit on Benjamin Franklin and science in the 18th century. You may remember her from our previous conversation, along with Dr. Aaron Holmes, about mapping in early America, and I'm delighted to have her back on the program. Now, before we begin, we just want to say hello and welcome to our new subscribers, and welcome back to our old friends. And with that, let's paint portraits of Colonial Virginia with Janine Yorimoto-Bolt. I'm curious to know how this came about, and maybe the first question I should ask is, is less about you know, where did this project come from in the near term with your scholarship? But um, have you always been fascinated by portraiture? Has that been something that you have been uh, interested in for a long time now? Yeah, so I, I've been interested in early American visual culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I got into portraiture specifically, actually, when I had a 2013 curatorial internship at Colonial Williamsburg Art Museum. Okay. And I was working in their paintings collection and they asked me to do a research project based on some Colonial Virginia portraits in their collection. And I just became completely fascinated by, by the material in their collection and the work I was digging up and decided uh, to really dig deep into the Colonial Virginia portraiture material and fell in love with portraiture that way. So it was kind of a happy accident then. In some ways. It was. Yes. Um, that is how I came up with my dissertation topic, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the Colonial Virginia Project, digital project, was actually had its origins in a, an appendix for my dissertation. Oh, really? Yes. So the dissertation I sort of really embarked on in about 2013, 2014. Um, I knew I wanted to write about Colonial Virginia portraiture. And uh, as I was trying to develop the prospectus for the dissertation, my advisors, you know, they were all very supportive, but um, I do remember specifically one of them asking me, like, that sounds great. I haven't read much about Virginia portraiture, but like, like how many are there, like how many portraits even still exist? Um, which is sort of a fair question because Virginia is sort of understudied in the scholarship on colonial visual culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... From there, I was sort of inspired to just start collecting as many references as possible to portraits from colonial Virginia. Um, and from there, I knew once I had a ton of information um, in my evidence base, I would be able to make analysis about trends over time, who was painted, et cetera. 
Um, and so I started collecting all this material and created my own personal database. And during the research part and writing part of my dissertation, I used Zotero. Okay. And had sort of individual file references for every portrait I came across, um, whether it was in a, an actual physical object that still existed and was in a museum collection or in a photo archive with images that I had reference to, or even if I just found archival references to portraits that are no longer um, extant. And so through Zotero, I could tag portraits with every sort of attribute I could think of, right? Who the artist was, when it was painted, where it hung, who the sitter was, um, the color of the costume, any props in the portrait, and develop this sort of massive personal database. Um, and then when I was finishing the dissertation manuscript, my advisor, who knew I'd been working from this personal database, and who noticed my discussion in sort of the introduction about how I'd assembled nearly 500 portrait references, mm-hmm. uh, asked me to turn it into an appendix, right? And she said, write it all down into an appendix form because that will speak to your methodology and it's a collection of sort of useful research. And I was sort of hesitant to do so only because I knew it would be a massive project. <laughs> um, and it was. It was probably about 200 pages, right, worth of notes. typed out notes about all these portraits. Yeah. Um, but then at the defense, my advisors were all sitting around a table, and it was like, well, what do we do with this? This is huge. And um, it was uh, suggested that it be a digital project, you know, and, and it would be perfect for a digital project. And so luckily the Alejandro Institute uh, was interested in developing a digital project out of that database. And that's, that's where it started. Um, I defended my dissertation in the spring of 2018. And then um, in about in the spring of 2019, I you know, met with Alejandro Institute and we developed a plan to turn it into a digital project. That's amazing. Uh, so you, you built a digital archive essentially from the ground up, you know, doing all that legwork and then working with the OI to get it up online. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's take a step back for a moment. And, and I want to ask you sort of two big questions. You had mentioned here at the top that you study early American visual culture. Uh, so can you unpack that for us? What does that mean to study early American visual culture? Sure. Uh, for me, it's, I was just really interested in all kinds of artwork, anything visual that was being produced in colonial America, uh, painting, portraits, print, uh, material, related material culture. Um, I was an art history and a history double major in undergrad and, you know, wanted to combine those two interests, went into an American studies graduate program and wanted to continue really using visual evidence to learn about history. You mentioned the fact that historians have not looked at Virginia specifically when they're looking at portraiture or, or visual culture. What explains that? I mean, it was the the, uh, the the most powerful colony, one of the most influential. Why have historians sort of ignored it? Yeah, so I think it's attributed to a number of things. Um, one of the big things is actually early Southern visual culture has largely been overlooked. Um, Virginia in particular, Charleston has received increasing attention over the years. Um, but I think part of that is to do with because it's created in the South and the artistic centers in the 19th and 20th century, even today are largely in the North, you know, New York, mm-hmm. and Boston, for example, um, which leads to a bias in sort of what gets studied. Um, there's also the fact that Southern material and visual culture was tied to slavery and there was sort of a cultural bias against it. Um, 
in the early years of early American art history. And there's also um, sort of a underlying narrative of exceptionalism in the early work scholars were doing in early American art, right? They were interested in studying artists and artwork that were American sort of born and bred, if that makes sense. So artists like John Singleton Copley and Charles Wilson Peale received a lot of attention because they were evidence of sort of American born genius. Mm -hmm. And they're very talented painters uh, who were in high style. Uh, Whereas the artists who overwhelmingly worked in Virginia uh, weren't necessarily as naturally talented as someone like Copley. so I think that contributed a lot. There's sort of an aesthetic bias um, to what gets studied. Um, and the Southern material doesn't survive in as large enough numbers, mm-hmm. uh, partly because of all the wars that occurred in the South, right? Um, the American Revolution led to the destru- destruction of artwork, but sort of the Civil War. Um, and then just the climate, right? These hot, humid plantations aren't ideal locations for painting storage, right? So a lot of portraits get destroyed over time. Sure. And so I think there's you know, a number of reasons that Virginia gets overlooked. So you mentioned people like Copley and, and, and Gilbert Stewart and some of these big names. So who were the who were the, the figures painting Virginians? Right. So there are currently um, I've recorded 28 individual artists with portraits attributed to them in the database. So mm-hmm. they're all listed on the site, um, as well as of course number of artists who have yet to be identified. Um, Charles Wilson Peale did actually work in Virginia, although his Virginia work tends to get overlooked in the scholarship. Um, John Wollaston and John Hesalius are two of the most prolific colonial artists who painted all around the colonies and also came to Virginia, as well as John Durand and Matthew Pratt. Um, And then Charles Bridges and William Daring are really great artists um, because their only recorded colonial paintings are from Virginia. So as far as we know, they only painted in Virginia. Wow. And are these individuals, uh, surely most of these people are not native Virginians, but they're coming from elsewhere. They're coming from the other colonies and, and most likely Europe. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. Um, a lot of them are coming from England, a couple from Scotland, and then some some of the later artists from you know Maryland and Pennsylvania. So that, I guess that raises the question, what does it take to train as an artist uh, in the 18th century Atlantic world, or I guess the, even the 17th century Atlantic world then? Right. So it's, it's sort of a mix um, of native-born artists and sort of these English artists. So a lot of the artists who were born in England or abroad were trained there as well. So someone like John Wollaston actually started probably as a studio assistant mm-hmm. in another artist studio, probably as a drapery painter. So he was painting like a clothing on portraits by um, artists who had more prestige in London and then came to the colonies uh, to work more independently uh, and to seek their own uh, commissions. Artists like uh, John Durand and William Daring appear to have begun as sign and coach painters. So they were more like tradesmen and artisans, right? They were being hired to paint signs for shops, paint people's wow. carriages, paint houses. Um, and then they recognized that they, there was a market for portrait painting that other people couldn't fill. So they sort of transitioned and became sort of self-taught portrait painters. And then some other artists, like uh, John Hesalius, um, got their early training from other artists working throughout the colonies. So, Hesalius was born in Maryland, um, or Pennsylvania, sorry, painted a lot in Maryland, 
his early uh, training was probably with his father, who was also a painter, and Robert Speak, who was a traveling artist. Um, and so they sort of start teaching each other in the colonies. Oh, that's, so that's interesting. So there's a lot of, uh, I guess you could say network going on, but certainly probably patronage as well. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of uh, networking going on between and amongst painters um, and patrons, although it can be difficult sometimes to trace these connections through archival documents. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, what was the function of a portrait in colonial Virginia? Why would someone want to sit and then what, what's the technical term? Is it sit for a portrait or sit to a portrait? I think sit for, typically, okay. is, is what is said. Um, so Virginians, like other um, colonists and, you know, others within the British-speaking Atlantic world, uh, commissioned portraits, you know, for the same reason as everyone else, right? Mm. Uh, to preserve their likeness for future generations, right? It's family documents. Um as well as to show off their wealth and status. So that's two reasons. Uh, portraiture in the colonies in particular had the power to proclaim the sitter's Britishness and civility through participation in this grand European tradition of portraiture. Mm-hmm. Right? This takes on particular resonance in the colonies when there's sort of accusations about cultural degeneration. Um, but portraits also helped bind families and communities together by using sort of shared pictorial conventions and through the exchange of portraiture. Um, And finally, I think portraits became a site where colonists could mediate their identity, right? So portraiture itself is about self-representation, how a subject wants to be uh, seen and remembered. Uh, And portraits were, of course, really expensive. So only relatively few people could even afford a portrait. Um, And so that means that they almost always were painted only once in their lifetime, right? Rare people Mm. were painted more than once. And so that means that the portraits were very carefully thought out and represent a very conscious choice about how that subject would be represented. And so each portrait is therefore a sort of visual biography and becomes a site where they get to figure out what, how they want to be remembered and who they are. So that's really interesting. So how, what were those negotiations look like between the subject and the artist? How would they work out, how the subject would be portrayed or, you know, is it as simple as something like the, the subject would come with a list of, I don't know, demands or maybe suggestions for how they would like to be uh, depicted or within how much of that is the artist bringing together sort of these larger tropes that are circulating throughout the Atlantic in this period uh, to shape an image of this individual? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both, but um, from what we can tell from the archive, um, these portrait painters were beholden to their patrons, right? They mm-hmm. may not get paid if the, the patron's not happy with the portrait. Sure. Um, we have very few archival references to what this process looks like in the colonies. But um, someone like Charles Wilson Peel, who kept a diary, records how he would make changes to portraits based on what the patron or family member requested. So we do know that a lot of these sitters are making demands. They are also probably relying on these artists, though, to share the latest fashion, right? So these artists mm. have better access to, you know, maybe circulating print. So they know it's fashionable abroad. They know what's fashionable in other colonies. So there's probably very much an element of the artist uh, bringing their own knowledge about style and representation. And it probably was somewhat of a negotiation in many cases, right? The patron would want one thing and then the artist 
could give them advice on how to be represented. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that a lot of artists were using British published portrait prints as sources, right? So okay. they might have these portraits of these aristocrats from England uh, in their collection. They might, you know, travel with like folders of print and the patron and the artist could work out how, um, how the sitter could be represented based on these prints, right? So they might say, I want to be painted just like this print, mm-hmm. right? And there's actually uh, some very specific examples where you can actually match an 18th century uh, painted portrait by someone like Copley or Jeremiah Theus in Charleston um, with an exact copy of an English print and all that changes really is the face. And so there are definitely conventions circulating around the British world that these sitters and artists are drawing. Well, that's really neat. Uh, and how, how much would, I guess, a typical portrait cost? Yeah, so that's a um, great question. I pulled up my notes on that because people always ask about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> there are relatively few receipts left, right? But what we do know is that portraits, um, there's sort of each artist would have sort of a standard sort of menu, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, portrait cost. So you could have, and these costs depended on how large the canvas sizes were. And there are standard canvas sizes imported from England, right? Half length, three quarter length, and Kit Kat, which all just is a fancy term for how large these portraits are. I see. Uh, and then portraits. Painters would charge certain amounts based on what size portrait canvas you wanted mm-hmm. and how then that size also determined how complicated the portraits would be, right? The smaller portraits tended to be far less complicated mm-hmm. as well as smaller. Um, so Wollaston, for example, extraordinarily prolific. Um, he probably charged anywhere between six pounds to 15 pounds for sort of the 30 by 25 canvas okay um and we know that based on a handful of receipts there are um william daring once got paid nine pounds two shillings for a portrait um and martha dandrus custis who mm-hmm. of course we know from mount vernon right she paid uh, approximately she paid 56 pistols uh which is approximately about 42 to 46 pounds Wow. For three large portraits um, depicting herself, her first husband, Daniel Custis, and their two children. So three oh, portraits. Yeah. And, um, and so we know exactly how much she paid for three portraits. And those are the portraits at Washington and Lee, if I'm not mistaken, right? Is that correct? That is correct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things you mentioned was that these were uh, done in part to communicate ideas of identity. And more specifically, Britishness. Um, and you know, the project is called colonial Virginia portraits, but these folks are trying to portray something much larger than Virginia. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what they're trying to do, how they're trying to fit in within the larger British imperial family by having their portraits painted? Sure. Well, by, so in England, portraits were already really important visual documents. Um, they were status markers, they're important, um, modes of establishing biography, um, and so simply by partaking in this British tradition, mm-hmm. they're sort of showing that they have education and status because they understand how portraits work within the larger British tradition. 
Um, we also see, um, and this is sort of the larger research project that I'm, I'm working on, right, my dissertation and now book project, that colonists start uh, using portraits to convey uh, very specific regional identities. I see. Their portraits. Um, and they do this through shared community values, right? So how mm -hmm. your neighbors all get portrayed, there's sort of a sense of sameness a lot of the time. Uh, and that sameness is a very strategic move, right? You want to look like everybody else within your social class and your community. Um, but they're also drawing on British tradition, even as they subtly start departing from it and making reference to localized, um, you know, localized trends. So, for instance, you start seeing a rise in the number of red cardinals that are being portrayed. Red cardinals oh. are Virginia nightingales. They're indigenous uh, North American birds. Um, so they're referencing some local um, animals and local icons and adapting them, right? So you would see parrots and British birds in British painting. Mm -hmm. They start using some very regionally specific ones in their own. Oh, that's really cool. I never realized that before. I, you know, I've never really, um, you know, I always sort of noticed the furniture in portraits because, you know, I think that's a fascinating way to look at social status and wealth, but I've never really noticed birds before, but now I'll be on the lookout for said birds in the future. Birds, uh, pine trees, uh, would get noted all the time, sort of some certain landscape elements. You'll mm -hmm. start seeing the famous Washington portrait by Charles Wilson Peale has sort of vague references to rocky land and waterfalls. At the same time, he's thinking about the falls of Potomac River and the Ohio River Valley. Uh, mm -hmm. And so they're making these very, these very specific regional references. Uh, and so in doing so, they're adapting British portrait conventions for their own localized purposes and start showing a sort of self-conscious colonial identity within the larger British empire, right? So they're partaking in this larger Britishness while referring to some very specific localized elements. So I wonder then sort about, of, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to sort of set them apart from what the English are doing. So I wonder then about the reception of these paintings. Would, would someone consciously know that you know, Washington is standing sort of near representations of the falls of the Ohio, or the falls of the Potomac, or, you know, would they immediately identify a cardinal as a kind of, uh, and, and, and feel a kind of social kinship with a fellow Virginian in that sense then? I think so. Um, I think colonists have been, uh, colonists knowledge of the art market, I think has been, uh, um, would be underrated. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. um, there are a number of art manuals circulating throughout the colonies. Um, and the sheer number of uh, English portraits, the portrait colonists would travel to England and be painted in England and then bring these portraits back. The sheer number of those, as well as their access to art manuals, shows that actually they're probably very well versed mm. in how to read portraiture. Um, an allegorical portraiture and I, the study of iconography was well established in, um, in the art, you know, in art history, in how to read art, right, dating back to the Renaissance, right? A gentleman's education involved knowing some of these classical traditions. So I think that, um, yeah, they would have been able to look at most of these portraits and sort of seen what the portrait artist was trying to do. And how would these have portraits have been received if they happened to make their way to England? Would they have been seen as provincial and reinforcing 
some of the stereotypes that the British had towards the colonists? So there's um, <laughs> there's very few examples of portraits from Virginia being sent over to England where we have sort of documentation of how they were viewed. Mm-hmm. It's far more often to have the other, you know, the, the, the reversal, right? People sending portraits from England back. In the 1690s, though, um, Daniel Park, the Virginian, sent two portraits to his cousin, John Evelyn. And John Evelyn wrote to his relatives and called them very ill done, um, <laughs> which I find hilarious. Uh, so that probably indicates that they were painted in Virginia in the mm-hmm. 1690s, um, and they were received as poorly made. Um, so... Perhaps they might have reinforced them. Some of them may have reinforced these negative stereotypes, but it's hard to say. <laughs> sort of like the equivalent of getting your class pictures back and just saying, what is this? You know, or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we've talked a little bit about social status. I wonder you know, what these portraits also communicate uh, regarding gender and race. Yeah, so gender is a little bit easier, right? Because we know mm-hmm. gender is... Um, and there's sort of very obvious symbols that get put in portraiture that speak to gender, right? Flowers and fruit are clearly signs of, of fertility and reproduction, and they appear all the time in women's portraiture. Um, men's portraiture features often a greater diversity of props that often speak to their profession or interests. So books, writing instruments, rifles, um, animals, these all hint at sort of men's profession, mm-hmm. but also masculinity, right? So, Because when you view them together, right, when you have these men standing with rifles and birds in the landscape and a woman sitting with flowers and their husband and wife and they're meant to hang together, you start seeing um, how these portraits speak to their idealized views of how men and women should be represented, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of men as masters and protectors and women as sort of these sexual beings. Um, and the important thing to remember, of course, is that these are all choices. Mm-hmm. Women were educated. They did interesting things. They didn't, you know, lounge around outside with flowers in their lap. But that's how they all choose to be represented. And that speaks sort of these gendered values. Mm-hmm. And when we have a large database, like I've put together for Colonial Virginia Portraits, you can see these trends. And then you can also start to compare them to other places because in places like Philadelphia or Boston, it was not uncommon for women to have books in their portraits as well. But in Virginia, their books are very, very rare in women's portraiture. And so you can start making arguments and seeing how these regionalized values about gender get constructed in these portraitures, mm-hmm. in these portraits, because they change based on place and time. Well, that's really fascinating. Race is a bit trickier because really these portraits are more about whiteness than anything else, sure. right? Uh, there are actually only three portraits from Virginia that include an enslaved figure in them, which is really a really low number. Mm-hmm. Um, and because these white subjects were in charge of the portrait commission, we can we know very little about what it says about blackness or you know these enslaved individuals. Um, but we can look at how... Um, these white subjects choose to be represented along non-white people. And in these choices, they give us a hint as to how race is being consciously constructed in the 18th century, right? So if you look at the three portraits with enslaved attendants, I mean, you can find them on the database if you search in the attributes section uh-huh. for enslaved attendants. 
you'll be able to click on that, that attribute. Um, all three of these non-white attendants are pictured in very obviously subservient or marginalized positions, mm -hmm. either in the distance or to sit behind the white subject. They all look directly at the white subject instead of looking out at the viewer, um, and it's supposed to be sort of a sign of submission. These are very clearly idealized constructions from the white perspective of master and enslaved relationships sure. and sort of the idealized racial hierarchy. Um, and so we get a sense that in this 18th century world, uh, to be white was to be visible, genteel, um, and in a position of mastery over non-white bodies. Um, and enslaved people or non-white people are not supposed to be there at all. Right? Yeah, that makes total sense. You just helped us understand how these portraits speak to gender and race. And I was wondering, you know, what advice might you have for teachers who are trying to uh, help their students read a portrait? Yeah, so first, um, you know, pull up an interesting portrait or two and start by asking students to give very, very detailed descriptions of these portraits before you even start discussing who the sitter was, right? What do they see? And I mean really detailed descriptions, right? So, and make them think hard about what they're saying. So if they say... Well, I see a woman in the portrait. Okay. Well, how do you know, right, that it's even a woman? Right. What about her or that that person's body tells you that? Um, and this is a reminder: they have to explain sort of these ideas about what they're seeing. That all of these are constructed objects, right? Mm -hmm. That all that every single brush stroke is purposeful. So everything from gender to the race is a construction, um, and we're supposed to see very certain things based on what the artist is putting in that canvas um, and make them talk about like little details too, right? So is there a certain part of the painting that's highlighted or shadowed? And then from there, you can start asking, you know, why, right? Who is this person? Why might that subject have wanted to be painted this way? What values might it mm -hmm. show? Um, what was happening in their life at that time that may have informed the painting, right? So I've included some biographical information where I can, but for instance, were they married that year? You know, what's going on in their lives? Uh, was there a war? Right. So they can start making, um, making analysis based on these portraits and they ask those questions first. And then they should also think about, you know, who was the audience, right? Was it their family, sure. it their friends? I mean, who would have been seeing these? what might different audiences have seen when they looked at that, right? And then, of course, in Virginia, there are plantation societies. So what about the enslaved people who would have been looking at these portraits? What would they have seen? Um, what's not visible in the portrait based on what you know about these people? Um, and so that's how I think you can open up discussion for portraiture within classrooms. Oh, that's a really great example. And, and have you, uh, I'm surely you've used these in your own teaching, I'd imagine. Have you, what kind of experiences have you had in the classroom using these uh, to explain early America? Yeah, I think um, I've had some great discussions with students, um, especially portraits of women, because it can be so hard to find archival documents of, you know, written by women. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you have their portrait, you can start talking about, you know, what, about their lives and these values. Um, I also, my favorite suggestion in pairing to do, right, if you pair certain portraits with 
secondary readings or um, archival documents, you can really make some rich analysis. So my favorite pairing um, to the portraits of William Byrd II and Lucy Park Byrd mm-hmm. with readings from William Byrd II's Secret Diary, which hopefully many early Americanists are familiar <laughs> with the diary. But if you're not, um, William Byrd's diary has all these really detailed passages about his daily life and his relationship with his wife. And he documents their arguments, sort of their, their whole relationship, right? But you don't get Lucy's perspective on the marriage at all. Right. You get Lucy's perspective. And so it's really fun. And it's the greatest discussion is to have students read part of this diary and or articles about their relationship, which are already out there, and then look at their portraits. And does Lucy's portrait tell you the same thing about her as the diary? Ah. Um, can you... You know, can you learn more about Lucy or William or their marriage for these individuals through their portraits that you can't through the diary? And how does the diary align with these portraits? So what have been some of the responses to that? I mean, that's a great exercise. And I love that idea of, of pairing um, William Byrd's rather salacious at times diary with, with the portrait of him and his wife. I mean, what, what have uh, some of the conclusions that students have come to? Well, the best thing about Lucy's portrait um, is how assertive she is right so William's diary paints her as this like argumentative bratty woman mm-hmm. um, and her portrait presents her as really strong um, because she's right up at the picture plane and she's pointing very assertively out of the portrait and she's being served by an enslaved attendant this mm-hmm. is one of the only portraits with an enslaved attendant in it and when you read the diary um, there's all these passages about how they, they use their enslaved attendants against each other. She beats enslaved woman in the, in the diary. Um, and here's this idealized construction of a male attendant serving her. And so you get a sense of, well, were they, was William Byrd actually ashamed of her relationship as a plantation mistress? If, he, if this portrait shows her as sort of this proud plantation mistress, um, what's the idealized relationship here between enslaved person and, and mistress versus what gets presented in the diary? Um, she's painted more assertively, actually, than her husband is in his adult portrait. And so what does that say uh-huh. about, um, you know, was he actually ashamed of her or not? And you get a sense that, you know, she was a pretty assertive um, powerful woman based on this portrait. Um, but maybe that's not a bad thing as it was presented in the diary. Right? Sure. Sure. Oh, that's really fascinating. Well, as, as we're um, uh, coming to a, our last few minutes here, I actually want to circle back to uh, the beginning of our conversation and talk a little bit more about the, the construction of the database and uh, not necessarily the technical terms and whatnot, but um, you know, where did you have to go to find all these references? I mean, yeah, you have, you built this huge appendix that then became this lovely site. And I'm wondering how far afield uh, you had to go to find some of the actual portraits, or I gather some uh, just mere mention of portraits that had once existed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I started um, with the major museum collections. So Colonial Williamsburg and the Virginia Museum of History and Culture have the largest collections of Colonial Virginia portraits went there, looked through their object files where they, the curators at both institutions have already assembled some great resources, right? So I started there. 
looked at other museum collections. I looked through photo archives. So these are essentially just um, files and files of photographs of portraits from both private and public collections. Mm. The most important ones for my research were the MESDA Object Database, which comes out of MESDA, the Museum of Early Southern Decorative Art. Okay. And the Frick Art Reference Library, um, which are both fully available online now. So I could search by keyword and artist, um, assembled those references. I also looked at other photo archives, like the Catalog of American Portraiture from the National Portrait Gallery. Um, and I even went to London and looked through the photo archives at the National Portrait Gallery in London and the Cartel Institute with Library. And so museum collections, photo archives, and then archival collections, I could not get to every major Virginia family archive collection. That just wasn't going to happen for the dissertation. <laughs> um, so I did rely a lot on published um, archival material. Um, but then also targeted some of the larger family collections. Mm -hmm. um, I do had portrait collections and found references to portraits in letters, diaries, wills, and probate inventories. Of course, some probate inventories are available online, like the Gunston Hall probate inventory, which is a great resource. Um, and then also looked through 19th and 20th century family histories. So a lot of late 19th century and early 20th century um, Folks were very interested in genealogy, and they were writing down uh, sort of references and memories to their old family collections. And there's a wonderful, um, some wonderful references and descriptions of portraits that have been lost in fires that people were writing down. Oh, wow. And so that's how I was able to get a lot of these sort of missing portraits recorded, because these families said, oh, they burned down at the 1916 fire at Rosewell Plantation, but we remembered him painted in this great portrait or whatever. So the database is not exhaustive. I'm sure there's more portraits out there, more references, and I'll keep adding to the database as I find them. Um, and that brings me to the last place, which was private collections. I had mm -hmm. a few connections that um, allowed me to speak to some, some private uh, collectors or really descendants um, who continue to have portraits in their private collection and who allowed me uh, either to come see them in person or who sent me pictures, which I'm very grateful for. Well, that's pretty amazing. Were these all in, in North America or did you have to go to London for some of those as well? All of the Colonial Virginia portraits that are that I found private collections are, are here in North America. Oh, okay. Well, you still got a trip out of, uh, to London out of it anyway, though. I did, <laughs> yes, because a lot of these people were painted in London, yeah. and I needed to learn more about these English artists painting the colonists. So you're you're still actively looking. At, it sounds like, or at least you you would be delighted to take in additional information into the database. Is that correct? That is correct. And yeah. and how can folks do that if they happen to? Um, be rummaging in the attic one day and find um, George Mason just sort of hanging about. Yeah, well, if they find George Mason, they should definitely contact Gunston Hall because they would love to know about it. <laughs> um, but then also there's a common feature at the bottom of every page on Colonial Virginia Portraits that will connect you uh, via email to me. So you could just send a quick note via the, port the Colonial Virginia Portraits site. Okay, great. And what's the URL for that, just so we get that out there? It's colonialvirginiaportraits.org. Okay, great. And I guess we should close with um, the most important question of all. What's your favorite portrait? 
Yeah, so um, hands down, Lucy Parkbird. Hands down. It's a beautiful portrait. It's got an Indian basket in it, an enslaved attendant. If I was looking for a holy grail of a portrait to talk about gender, race, class, transatlantic politics, you know, sexuality, everything is in that portrait. And it's a beautiful, underappreciated portrait. I think that's a good place to leave it there. Well, Janine, thank you very much. Congratulations on a a wonderful digital project. And it sounds like an excellent dissertation turned book. And um, we hope you're doing well. And we look forward uh, to seeing you out and about again when uh, this craziness is all over. All right. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky. Our music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, please consider making a donation to Mount Vernon. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.